Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, when I'm president, what do, want, what do you want to talk about today? Oh, so well, we're back to we're back to you being president, right? When okay. I'm president, okay. Um, I want to have 100% employment. Okay. Right, because that would be the best thing ever. <laughs> well, actually, everybody has a job. Everybody loves their job. Everybody goes to work. Everybody makes money. Capitalism is fabulous, right? That, isn't that generally speaking how this is supposed to work? Uh, well, according to most economists, uh, 100% unemployment uh, would actually cause uh, a significant number of issues um, in the economy. Yeah, but economists are wrong all the time. <laughs> um, okay, fine. I will, I will allow, what, 5% unemployment? Is that a well, good... Uh, uh, most economists would say um, unemployment being somewhere between four to five percent is good. Um, and the reason why is it's not because economists want a certain percentage of people to be without jobs and thus. Oh, I don't suffering. know. I think they might because no, economists. No, okay. <laughs> the reason why is you want that kind of cushion within the labor force just in case you have uptick in certain industries that may need additional people to be employed okay okay and if you don't okay, have you want, that you want a little bit of churn okay you you need to have people in reserve just in case there are new jobs or changes within the economy to go ahead and handle okay the demand for more workers in a particular sector okay okay um so because if you don't have that that's when you start seeing inflationary pressures arise within the labor market because if you know for instance nia that there is a shortage of librarians you can basically go ahead and tell your current employer or any other you know library that is looking for a librarian I want more money and you basically know you're going to get it simply because there aren't enough of you uh, oh, by the way that is never a problem in librarianship <laughs> but um but i can see where that's going to be a problem perhaps in teaching in the okay. coming as teachers are are quitting there may be a shortage of teachers and so teachers may be able to to get uh higher uh pay rates but okay so so the government has an unemployment system right where you you can if you have been employed you can apply for unemployment and the government will help you for a while until you find another job correct where did that start how did that how did it become the government that looks after people in that way Okay, so basically what you're talking about is um, uh, in the 1930s, in response to the Great Depression, uh, the United States federal government created a number of programs designed to help uh, the millions of Americans who lost their jobs during the Great Depression. Now, Nia, you just mentioned the unemployment program. The unemployment program is basically the idea that if you lose your job because of no fault of your own to tide you over, okay, for a short period of time, the federal government, um, and this is administered by state government, so it's a really good example of cooperative federalism, uh, the federal government will give you unemployment benefits so you can continue to pay, you know, your rent, your mortgage, put food on the table, et cetera, et cetera. Right, because if you can't pay those things, you have cascading failure across the 
across right. the economy, right? Because if I can't yes. pay my rent, then then the guy who owns my apartment building can't pay his mortgage, which means that he could lose that property, right? Like it becomes a yes. And okay, you're not, so that's why you have that. You that's the reason why you have that. But there was another program during the 1930s, uh, Nia, uh, the uh, Works Progress Administration, and the and, and again. Uh, listeners, because we love our acronyms, okay, it is known as the WPA, okay, Uh, the WPA was created in 1935 by an executive order issued by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the WPA was not unemployment insurance, okay, the WPA was a jobs program, This is where the federal government actually said, we have millions of able-bodied Americans unemployed. And because they are unemployed, they're not paying the rent. They've more than likely lost their house. So if they at some point, you know, owned a house or paying a mortgage on a house, okay, that's gone. But these quote unquote breadwinners, okay, weren't providing food for their kids. So kids were going hungry. Um, They weren't contributing anything to retirement. In fact, okay, a very high percentage of Americans lost their retirement savings. Uh, If they were farmers, they lost their farms, okay? And just as a side note on the retirement, there was no social security at that point. No, you don't get right. Social Security until 1935, the same year. Yep. Okay, so so yep. there was no, like, what you saved was what you lived on when you were yes. old and couldn't work anymore. So yeah. so if, I mean, you, if, weren't, you, were if fort- you weren't able to put away savings, yes, then that's also sort of a long-term disaster that you're talking about. Because by the time you're you're able to retire, you don't have anything to put away. So yeah, because you know, many Americans had to go ahead and dip into their savings in the first few months of the Great Depression. Right. And then and then when they burned through their savings, they were effectively, you know, screwed. Okay. Right. Um so the WPA was designed to go ahead and put able-bodied Americans back to work. And for those of you who are of an economic bent, this is in the tradition or the philosophy theory of British economist, John Maynard Keynes. Oh, Keynesian. Keynesian Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics. This is the idea that when a nation's economy is in a downturn, a prolonged downturn, like a great recession, like a great depression, Keynes actually advocated, and this went against the grain, okay, he actually advocated that the, uh, a nation's government should spend money to generate economic activity. Because if the government generates economic activity, then individuals will have money to spend. And if they're spending money, corporations will rehire people that they've laid off. So even more people now have money. Oh, okay. I see. The, the, it, it gooses everything, right? Because yes. so these people reverse... are employed. So now they're putting money into the economy, employing other people who are yes. putting in money into the economy, employing other people. And it's like that commercial from the 70s. Remember, you tell two friends and you tell two friends about Breck. Yes. Breck shampoo was that commercial. Anyway, yes. Anyway, um, and it proliferates across the, okay. Yeah, so you use the term cascade in regards to a downward trend. The idea of Keynesian economics is if the government spends during an economic downturn, it can have positive you know, uptick, a, a cascading effect upwards, okay? Right. Uh, it builds, it builds, it builds, and then eventually, when a nation's economy returns to uh, growth, oh, then, then you can shut down the program. Then the government should uh, uh, spend less money. Okay. Okay, should spend less money. So you so, basically, 
you throw money at the problem for a little while until the problem mitigates itself. And then you're able to say, okay, well now those people, because I assume that they didn't pay. So the WPA, I assume did not pay thousands of dollars an hour for people to work like, right? Like if you could get a job at a regular company, then you probably would make more money. So it would encourage you you would have something in the meantime that would keep you alive, but it would encourage you to to look for work that is higher paying, right? That's right. Um, okay. Basically, uh, the WPA uh, would pay slightly below the local prevailing wage. Okay. okay. Um, but again, you know, for those of you who are like, well, that doesn't sound very good, but remember, Okay, we're talking about people who had gone years without jobs. So to, for readers to give you a sense of the scope of, of how horrific the Great Depression was in the United States at that time, okay? Um, the population in the United States in the mid-1930s was roughly 127 million. In 1935, there were 20 million Americans on relief in the United States. So we're basically talking about one in every six Americans was receiving some sort of aid. That's terrifying. Was, yeah, whether it was from the federal government, what many Americans don't understand was before the New Deal and the Great Depression, most welfare benefits came from nonprofits. So we're talking about church related relief organizations. Okay. State governments were wholly unprepared to provide assistance to their citizens when the Great Depression hit. Okay. Oh, they didn't have the money. Well, you're talking well, about they didn't 17%, have the money. That's 17% of the population. It yes. doesn't have a job. I mean, even if the state okay. had a kazala of money, that would not be enough, right? Like, so it, in terms of those 20 million Americans, 8.3 million were children under the age of 16. So they wouldn't have been working anyways, or if they had been, they had been working limited hours because many states had passed child labor laws. Right. Okay. 3.8 million of that 20 million were between the ages of 16 and 65. And they were either unemployed, meaning they weren't working but looking for work, or underemployed, meaning they didn't have jobs and they had stopped looking. Because in their area, there were no jobs. Yes. Okay. Okay. Three quarters of a million of that 20 million were persons age 65 or older. Now, today, we know plenty of people over the age of 65 who work. But back then, if you lived to 65, you were at the high end of the life expectancy chart. Right. Okay. So, you know. Right. Because life was harder. Yes. I mean, okay. there was very little leisure. Life was harder. Like, work was harder. And basically, the way the WPA was set up was, okay, um, basically, there would be one person per family that would be permitted to work. And the way this all, you know, played out in terms of numbers, okay, um, three point. Five million workers, okay, receive jobs from the WPA, okay? That's a lot of workers. That, like, that's a that, huge workforce. Well, particularly when the, 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 the population at that time, Nia, you know, as we just discussed, okay, was 127 million, right? I mean, I, I'm not very good at math. But that's a really significant percentage of Americans who were employed directly by the federal government, by this one single program, okay? 
And we're not talking about people who worked for the federal government as a bureaucrat, okay? The WPA, okay, are, are we ready to go ahead and talk about the kind of work that they did? I am very interested in the kind of work that they did, but I have a, uh, I want to do a little bit of math here. Okay, so that works out to about 2% of the population. Yes. Were basically federal employees. Yes. That's a lot. That, I mean, that's yes. a lot when you think about. That's in addition to listeners. The people who were already federal employees who were employees just normal federal employees. Right. Yeah, okay. You know, those who were, you know, running the government. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, that's this a was lot a of huge, people. That's a, it, that's a, a big program. But then was, again, Americans were starving. Yes. Americans were starving. And they, and because in, in the 1930s, you had generally speaking men as breadwinners and women as yes. housewives. When a man is out of work, his wife and his children also suffer because he's theoretically the breadwinner. Like he's supposed to be bringing home at least, hence the name breadwinner, right? He's supposed to be bringing home bread. He's supposed to be. You know, providing for the family. Okay. That was his job. That was his role in the family. Right. Right. And psychologically, it's got to be terrible for a man at that time to not have work. Right. Like the 1930s, is uh, one of those decades where we had um, a, a huge uptick in the number of suicides committed by working age men. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm not surprised. Right? It's humiliating to not be yes. able to care for your family. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, no. Uh, the other, wait, though, I want to ask you one, one thing about um, sort of that you said one worker per family. Yeah. So a husband or a wife could get a job, but not both, both of them because Correct. they were trying to, quote, spread out the jobs. Yes. Across all families so that yes. as many families as possible had something coming in. That's right. Right. And yes. so nobody's getting getting wealthy off of this. But I'm wondering, and I know you probably don't know the answer to this, but when I saw your notes, it made me think, I wonder if there were couples at the time who decided not to get married so or that they, they could each have a job. Or they got divorced. Or they got I mean, divorced so they could each have a job. I don't know. That's you, kind of a weird. Yeah, the, the, that I don't know. But, you know, and think about how desperate you might might be if you were right. willing to put off marriage or you were willing to go ahead and buck societal norms and get a divorce. Right. I mean, because back then in the 1930s, the divorce rate in the United States is not was not nearly as high as the divorce rate is today. Oh. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, our divorce right now is like 50%, and it wasn't even remotely that back then. Yeah. But it, I wonder, and I, I didn't even think to think of it until I was looking at your notes um, to look up. So I might look that up and see, mention it at some, in some future podcast if the divorce rate went up. But that's an interesting, it's an interesting provision that the government makes that one person per family, right? Yes. Because they're trying to spread Yes, as it were, spread the wealth, spread the spread the money across enough people that that nobody is absolutely starving, that people can at least bring in something. And while at the same time making sure that people were not defrauding the system. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, That's a yeah. I mean. I mean, because th there were a bunch of criticisms of the WPA, uh, which we might get to in this episode or our next episode um, where we look at the WPA and its contribution to the development and maintenance of art in the United States. Yeah, I'm excited okay. for that episode, but, I'm, but this episode, I'm also excited. I mean, I'm interested to hear what they did. This is oh. what we're talking about now though. So there's two kinds of WPA, right? There's the art PA, and then there's the one we're talking about today, which is the physical, labor right yes. just sort of the i am hiring men and it's mostly men right they hired some yes. women but it's mostly men to do physical 
job, like construction-y type jobs, right? Is that yeah, the, the, mostly this construction? Is, this is known as infrastructure work, right? Okay. Yeah, infrastructure work, okay. Um, and uh, initially, the WPA had two sections, the Division of Engineering and Construction, and then the Division of Professional and Service Projects. <laughs> okay. okay. Which sounds terribly boring. Yes, it does. I want okay. that first one sounds more interesting. Okay. But the WPA basically built traditional infrastructure. The New Deal era was responsible, okay, for a huge growth in infrastructure projects in the United States. It's like the United States finally got caught up to what industrialization actually required of the nation, right? So they built roads, bridges, schools, libraries, courthouses, hospitals, sidewalks, okay, sewage and water um, uh, 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 facilities, right? And post offices, a huge number of post offices, right? Which is which is why you have tiny little post offices in towns all over America, right? America, it's yes. Like the town, the town that um, that my parents live in. The post office is the size of my apartment. It's yes. Very yes. small. Yes. It, it's very small, and, and like there's. I, I want to say there may be three employees, right? There may be, I think there's somebody who's always in the office and there's like two people who deliver mail. Yes. But my parents live in a rural part of North Carolina and that was enormously valuable to have, to have that infrastructure so that the mail system was, it didn't take weeks and weeks and weeks to get a, a letter from somebody. It would take significantly less time than that. Nia, you're speaking of, Post offices in a in small rural towns, um, which by the I, way they know everything. So if you move to a small rural town, and you need to know who in town, um, you know, you know, I don't, you know, can you know, can it can know, cut down a tree in your backyard? You go you know, to the post office know, and you ask the post lady, "Hey, who around here cuts down trees?" And she'll give you five names. You know, who's the best dentist? You know, you know, right. Uh, you know, you know, where's a good bank, right? Right. Um, you know, they know everything. Okay. And if you hang around in there, you hear gossip. Oh my God. Because yeah, people yeah. show up and they're like, you know, so-and-so is sleeping with such and such. <gasps> no, you know, and then yes. there's all these stories that get to, oh yes. I, when I go home, one of the first things my mom and my grandmother ask me to do is take them to the post office. <laughs> Okay, and, and it's not it's like Peyton Place in the post. Okay, office. and it's it's not a 10 to 15 minute, you know, stop <laughs> off. Okay, they're in there for a couple hours. I'm like, what are you guys doing there? Right? I you know, like are catch you up with everybody. <laughs> are you manufacturing the stamps? Okay, you know, are you know, is there is there a volunteer corps here? I mean, well, what's going on there? But the, the reason why I bring this up is my local post office for my hometown, the cornerstone on the building, and they still use the same building, 1938. Ah, okay. So it it's was, part of this program. It was part of the program. Right? I have not looked at the cornerstone of ours, but I bet it's. I bet it was part of the program. Okay. That's just. Okay, it, it, but but Nia, they did more than just what many of us would consider basic infrastructure. Right. They built museums, swimming pools, parks, community centers, playgrounds, coliseums, markets, fairgrounds, tennis courts, zoos, botanical gardens, auditoriums, city halls, gymnasiums. A lot of high schools got gymnasiums in the 1930s. Oh, okay. I they didn't have them before. I guess they didn't have them before. Well, that makes sense. If your local district can build a building to teach, they probably cannot build, they probably don't have enough money to money. build a gym, right? And if you have to make a choice between those two, of course, you would build classrooms. You would not build a yes. gym. Yep. So, so 
oh, okay, so recreation was done outside, but now it could be done inside, which means it's all weather. Yes. That's a huge benefit to, to schools yes. is to be able to have kids take a lap during the winter when you need them to burn <laughs> off some energy, right, or well, whatever. I mean, well, well, I mean particularly in, in, in the, the north and the northeast. I mean, come right. on now, right? Okay. Right, or, or the southwest where it's so hot. Like that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's cool. I didn't even know that. That's neat. The WPA, okay, 40 new buildings, or excuse me, 40,000 new buildings. They renovated 85,000. Okay. The new Can buildings. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Go. No, go ahead, Nia. I do want to mention that in your notes, you say that they built 254 golf courses. Yes. And 65 ski Five jumps. Ski jumps. Yes. I and 1101 ice skating. Ice skating rinks. Rinks. Yes. Can I just say I love that part of what the New Deal that I mean, uh, not to be difficult, but Roosevelt was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And physical exercise to him was one of it was super important. He swam a lot. He he had at time in the pool a lot because his legs didn't work. He yes. was um, more or less paralyzed, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, because he suffered from um, polio. Uh, yeah, adult onset polio. Yep. Yeah, so it, it's fascinating to me that one of the things that he wanted was things like rodeo grounds and you know athletic fields and handball courts, courts. and stuff like that, where where you have these like let's encourage people to be physically active yes in communal spaces that's that's i, I don't know i think that's cool I, especially coming from someone who could not partake of a lot of it himself and and a but lot it, of this was a lot of this and this is one of the criticisms but a lot of it was made up work right okay. yeah okay but but nevertheless okay as, as one historian pointed out that I came across in my research, the WPA, all this infrastructure work, all these schools, all these libraries, all of these athletic fields and, and places for people to exercise, it's like the country finally went ahead and got caught up to industrialization, right? Yeah. Because... There should be public parks. There should be public tennis courts. There should be, because if we're going to have people in cities working. Let's give them someplace to blow off steam, right? Right. Let's give them someplace to where they can go ahead and take a book out and read, right? You know, let's yeah. give. Probably yeah, not ahead. a lot of farmers playing tennis. No, no. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're getting enough physical Yes. They're getting enough physical in the labor that they don't need. That's but if right. You're, but if you're working in a factory and you just need to be outside, like in the sunshine, vitamin D and all that stuff, right? But you also want to have that with your children. You want to go play someplace with your children. You get parks now and you get zoos and you get things where people can go that are combination sort of learning, but also relaxation spaces. Station. And now you try to take away public parks from people now and they will be oh. up in arms. Like that is not happening. If the city, if the city of Richmond decided that it was just gonna close Chimborazo Park, uh, the, the outrage would be- Well, we're thinking about, you know, closing a zoo or right. getting getting rid of, of of ball fields right i mean these are the these are the kinds of amenities that workers today are like if i'm trying to decide between two jobs do i want to go to a city that has things for me to do things for my family to do when i'm not working 50 60 hours a week or don't they right and if they don't okay I don't care how much a potential employer wants to pay me. I'm going to go to the place that um, uh, has more for me to do, more for my family to do um, than the other place. Okay. It, it's, 
it just makes sense. It, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's you can live, you... you can live in this place with nothing, or you can live in this place with stuff that's cool and fab and fabulous to do. Why would you choose the nothing place? Yes. But so, I mean, yeah, no, I like that. Even though it may have been considered busy work, it actually in some ways becomes the fabric of American society. Yes. What do you mean? There's no, there's no ball field here for us to go throw a football. What do you mean? That's why not? Like that, I mean, you know what I mean? And, and some of this stuff is just important for the growth and development of a local government or a local government jurisdiction. Right. The WPA built 325 firehouses, renovated over 2,300 of them. Okay. If you have a large number of people in one area, okay. You, you need know that you need a lot of firehouses. You need firehouses, right? Right. They also built, this is a phenomenal number, Nia, over 20,000 miles of water mains. Okay. Miles. 20,000 miles, right? Okay. Again, think about when you what turn happens. on the faucet, thank the WPA. Yes. That's the WPA in a lot of communities, right? Yeah. In fact, what we now have in many uh, uh, local government jurisdictions, Nia, is that some of this infrastructure has never been repaired or replaced since the 1930s. And that's terrifying. Okay. Because what we need, we need my program. We need me to come in as president and we need to say, we're having yes. another WPA and we're going to do, but how much does it cost? Is the WPA expensive? Um, well, I mean, the WPA, now let, let's go ahead and get the exact figure, okay? Uh, do, 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 do. I have this somewhere in my notes. I kind of sort of went overboard. You guys would just be fascinated when I write up these notes because quite obviously sometimes I, I go down a rabbit hole and I don't get out, right, okay? But Nia's gone ahead and highlighted this. Uh, total WPA projects. And by the way, the WPA lasted from 1935 to 1941. Okay. And for some of you who are wondering why 1941, guess what happened in 1942? We entered World War II. There you go. And okay. at that point, you don't need, you no, don't you need this because you're on a, a war footing. So you're putting everything into defense. You're yeah, and the so, defense companies will be hiring left, right, and center. And you're drafting some of these people and sending them off to war. Yeah, I mean, the, and that's where we have starts. the draft in World War II. Yes, we did. Okay. And this is where you see, by the way, uh, 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 listeners, um, the explosion, the huge number of women entering into the workforce was during World War II. Right. Okay. Because men because, went off to war. Yeah, we sent all these able-bodied American males to fight in the war. But then we had all of these jobs that needed to be filled at the home front. Right. That's where Somebody you, had to uh, build tanks. Somebody had to build, you build, know, guns you know, and airplanes. And yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. But so how WP, much did they did they spend? The WPA in a six-year period spent eleven point four billion dollars. Oh, well, that's not bad. Today, that is 200 and what the equivalent today of 201 billion. Okay, that's way, guys, more. That's more than I was thinking. <laughs> okay, but, but, but again, guys, wow. think about the federal government budget, okay, which is trillions of dollars today. That's true. This is a drop in the bucket. I mean, the rate of return of the WPA, and mind you, many of you who are longtime listeners know, I am generally a fiscal fiscal conservative, okay? But the rate of return of what we got for the amount of money we spent, this was a good project, right? Okay, this was a good project. Um, well, yeah, if we only spent two, I mean, I, listen to me, only, like I have billions of dollars of my yeah. own hanging around. <laughs> if we spent 200, by the way, listeners, I do not have billions of dollars. I. Now, um, two hundred and one billion dollars is not over six years. 
is actually not that much money per year. I mean, you're only talking around what, three billion? No, that's not right. 30, 30 billion yeah. a year. So, and 30 billion out of the budget is even less of a big ginormous drop. I mean, like, I don't know, that seems like we got a lot of stuff for that, but we haven't kept up with it. If you look at our engineering reports for the United States of our bridges oh. and our roads, so it just makes you cry because we're, we're like a D plus or something. We're some terrible um, score for that because we have not kept those things up in part because no other president has done something like this, right? No other president has said, you know what? We're going to have a giant program and we're going to rebuild all this stuff. And one of the reasons why is today we have created so much red tape for the federal government to spend money. Okay. But during the New Deal, you had a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, and they were trying something that had never been tried before. So many of the accountability measures and controls that we now have in place just didn't exist, right? I mean, FDR went ahead and appointed Harry Hopkins to run the WPA, and he didn't get congressional approval of Harry Hopkins, right? He just hired Harry Hopkins and said, make this work, right? Today, okay, well, to give you a comparison, um, need, uh, recall the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009. Right. Oh, yes. Okay. so Bush 43 uh, convinces Congress to uh, pass um, uh, a bill to basically prop up those too big to fail industries and corporations. I believe that was known as TARP. Yes, it was TARP. Obama comes into office and does part two. Okay, the federal government was going to go ahead and spend a whole bunch of money for infrastructure projects. But one of the problems that arose was that it took two, two and a half, three years from the time the money got appropriated by Congress, okay, for shovels to dig into the dirt for the infrastructure projects. So and by then see, we were coming out of the recession. We were coming out of the recession, right? Right. This did this happen like immediately? Did he oh, say it happened do immediately. this thing? And okay. then and then they turned around and boom, they were doing the thing. They were doing stuff, right? They were, you know, they were building sidewalks, right? You know, they were digging foundations for a new library, right? They were putting new roofs on, you know, firehouse firehouses, right? Okay. So in a, I want to ask you about how this worked. So the federal government says there shall be money, and it gives it to the states, and then the states the, um, then, sort in, of put it out in, like, what do they, they have projects within the states, and then they fund, they were funded federally? Is that how? This is an example of cooperative federalism. So basically how it worked was this, Nia. So the federal government would go ahead and say to a state, you guys are gonna receive this amount of money for the WPA uh, program. Then the state, each state had quote unquote relief agencies, okay? We didn't ah. call it welfare, we called it relief, okay? Okay. Um, you know, nomenclature in regards to federal bureaucratic programs is really, really important, okay? So the state relief agency then would go ahead and decide, one, what projects would be worked on. Two, what would be the prevailing rate? And then three, actually hire the people. Hire the people. Okay. So again, this is a good example, listeners, of cooperative federalism. The federal government created the program and then basically said to the states, if you want to help out your citizenry, here is your allotment for WPA projects. Oh, so a state could have said no. A state could have said no. No single state said no. In fact, states- well, Why would you, would you? Right? Yeah, no, yeah, no, right? we don't want you to 
save our citizens from starving to death, right? Like, no, no, no. But they could have. Because of cooperative federalism, a state can opt out, right? A state can say, yes. I don't okay. I don't want your money because I don't like the conditions you put on the money or I don't like whatever, whatever, whatever. And we've seen that in other things like the extended employ- unemployment in recent times. States yes. have said, I am not interested in having that for a variety of reasons, most of which is they just want to be recalcitrant and difficult, but also because they don't <laughs> like the um, the conditions put on the money. Right. Yeah, so they, 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 they just they, don't they, yeah, they, they, have, they have theoretical issues. In fact, Nia, not only did all 50 states participate, but one of the criticisms of the WPA was that the Roosevelt administration, and in particular Harry Hopkins, who ran the WPA, played geographical favorites. Ah. The South complained, okay, they received almost 75% less WPA money than other regions, okay? Um, and the West also made that complaint and they said it, it demonstrated a bias within the Roosevelt administration, but particularly Harry Hopkins, because Harry Hopkins did not like how conservative the South and the West were. Harry Hopkins at one point I think he became Roosevelt's second vice president, but he stepped down after one term because he complained that President Roosevelt was not liberal enough. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Can I just say, that's not a complaint you hear often about Roosevelt. (laughs) Okay. I think Harry Hopkins in 1944, I want to say, maybe it was, yeah, 1944, ran for president um, as the Socialist Party uh, nominee, okay? Oh, okay. So he was, in fact, a commie pinko liberal, like, of the true tradition of, if you are not Karl Marx, you are not, you're not working for me, right? That was the criticism of Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins wanted a larger federal government presence, not a smaller one. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. So that's his complaint. What, um, but (laughs) I want to, I want to get to one of the programs before we wrap up for this episode, because I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss talking about this. Okay. Um, While I appreciate the firehouses and I appreciate the miles of of water mains and all that other kind of stuff there's something dear to my heart in in this that I want you to that I want you to talk about and you know what I'm referring to because you know I'm sure you put it in here for me and you're talking about the library service demonstration projects yes (laughs) They had an entire subunit, listeners, devoted to building libraries, but in particular, building libraries for underserved and rural populations, okay? And part of this project was the training of 30,000 women to become librarians, not men, women yep (laughs) and and by the way what that means is right so not only were they building libraries yes but they were also putting in infrastructure to hire these women to take books out into rural areas yes and deliver them to people who wanted to read now Sorry, I'm about to get all waxing poetic and I might even cry. So just bear with me for a minute. We're talking about women who would get on a mule and ride all day out to people's houses in the countryside. Because in 1935, my good friends, there were not a lot of roads. That's right. And there were certainly not a lot of rural roads. Roads connected cities. But if you lived out in the country country, and I mean like 
out in the country, not like what we think of as the country, which is actually, I hate to break it to you, the suburbs, but out in the real country where yes. you are miles from anybody, there, there wasn't a, a lot of those people did not own cars. My mother's parents never owned a car. My mom didn't ride in a car until she was 16 years old. Yeah, like, yeah. That's just how that works. You don't they didn't have money for a car and there were no roads. Even if you had money for a car, it would have to have been uh, uh, the toughest car ever made because you'd be riding on these dirt, potholed, graveled. I mean, there were roads, but they weren't paved. I should say they weren't paved roads. There they were weren't roads. paved roads. We had roads because we but had trails to this, turned into roads. But in regards to this library demonstration project, I mean, you know, Nia, to your point, you had women being trained to figure out ways to get library books to rural families. And because, because the thought was many of these kids weren't going to school. Right. And I know this sounds very foreign to a lot of our listeners, but well into the 1930s and 40s in the United States, you had rural communities with no schools, right? Right, because kids worked on the farm. Kids worked on the farm. But I mean, that's how everybody survived. But families lost farms during the Great Depression. So how do you prepare these kids for labor, for jobs, okay, in their futures? Because they weren't going to work on a farm, but they weren't going to school, okay? So how do you get books? I mean, just books to these families, right? Right. And that's what... This, this was a huge part. They, they have an example in the research that I did. There's an example in the, uh, with the state of South Carolina, which, you know, you know, Nia, you know, you know, you were born and raised in North Carolina, but South Carolina in many ways, you know, is not Very all that similar. different, it, not all that different, uh, different to North Carolina, right? Right. When the project started, South Carolina, okay, had fewer than five publicly funded libraries. At the end of the project in 1943, they had 12 publicly funded libraries, one regional library, and a fully funded state library agency for the first time in the state's history. Okay? I mean, you're talking about a state that had been around since the early 1800s, okay? that put no resources whatsoever in libraries, right? This was huge, okay? Oh, well, and the other thing that should be mentioned here is that libraries have consistently across their history been open to all races. And so when these women would deliver books, they weren't just delivering them to white kids. They were also delivering them to black kids under yes. the hope that reading would make people better citizens, right? Like that's what the goal of library, like let me deliver books and magazines. Unfortunately, they also delivered newspapers, which sometimes would be three to six months old because that's a yes. whole separate issue. But, you know. Um, but that's how the, some of the Appalachian communities, that was their connection to the outside world, was the postman and the library lady, or what they called the book lady. The book lady. Here comes yep. the book lady. Let's go meet the book lady. And, and some people would walk to meet them because they would come to a certain spot, right? Like, I'm gonna, everybody comes to this meadow. And if you're five miles from that meadow, you walk five miles and you get your books and you turn your books in and then you take the next ones out. And they brought books on canning and they brought books on, on animal husbandry, right? Like techniques and things that people needed to learn how to do or newer things that people were trying to change their weight. Like, oh, this is improved and we now this was know before. This. This was before listeners, you know, the ubiquitous YouTube video that right. shows you shows you how <laughs> to go ahead and fix the plumbing in your bathroom, right? Yeah, the book lady was the internet. Yes, 
Okay. And she was actually the active internet. She went from one place to another. Yes. And I'm sure that part of what her job was too, was to carry news from one place to another, right? So-and-so had their baby and they're doing fine. Such and such's father died. Oh my goodness. That's terrible. You know, that kind of thing. Cause people think now that news is just sort of, oh, well, you just look at your phone and you know everything that's going on. And that may be true, but back then, back it then, no, nope. and rural communities didn't, and they were suspicious of outsiders. But if she consistently brought something for their children, she wasn't an outsider. She was an insider who lived somewhere else. My grandmother referred to the staff at our local library as the book people. Right. <laughs> she didn't call yep. them librarians because nope. again, okay, you know, you, you know, where, you know, where she grew up in rural Pennsylvania, you know, part of the, you know, Appalachian mountain, okay. Region of the United States. Okay. It goes the whole way up to Maine folks. Okay. You know, where, you know, my hometown is part of the Appalachians. Okay. Um, but, you know, you know, they didn't have a library until the tail end of the Great Depression, okay? So she remembers the book lady, you know? Uh, they, they, the book lady would be at the junction of this farm and that farm. So right. if you wanted your books, you had to get to the junction of those two farms, right? And, she, and had, she, had, she had, you know, other uh, small communities to get to, and that was her stopping point, right? Right. And yes. she had what it was then called a traveling library and what would yes. now be called a bookmobile. Yes. Right. It's a similar concept. Of course, she didn't have a car. Most of them. Most of them didn't. Yes. Some did, but most didn't. Most did it on mule or foot. Occasionally, people did it by boat. If you lived in parts of Louisiana where you, the only way to get to your community is by boat. She yep. had to, the book lady had to put the books on the boat and bring them out to you, that kind of thing. But that to me is, I mean, I know it's because I'm a librarian, but it's special, oh, but, to but, me. but it's but, that kind of thing of reaching into rural communities and saying, we will do our best to improve your lives through spending this money. We're not just spending this money recklessly. We're spending well, but, it to improve people's lives. And in, in, in listeners, you know, full disclosure, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode, um, you know, Nia suggested it, but one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode is that my great grandfather um, was employed by the WPA for nearly four years. Oh, um, what did he do? Um, uh, well, before uh, the depression hit, he was a coal miner. Um, he lost his job. Um, and... Uh, he used to tell me stories. Um, I, I got to spend time with him uh, before he died when I was 13. Um, he dug ditches and laid concrete for roads. That's what he did. That's See, what I, and, and, and people and I, would think that coal miners wouldn't be unemployed, but the problem with coal, with coal was that that's how people heated their homes. If you yes. didn't have a home or you couldn't afford to buy the coal, Yes. And you just wrapped up and went cold. Eventually, coal miners would be out of work. That's a perfect example of how this. How the depression. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, And a lot of the coal that he mined, uh, the the coal mine where he worked, a lot of that coal was used for steel production. Well, you know, when the economy, you know, shrinks, okay, the demand Uh, for steel goes down. Right. Right. Okay. And interestingly enough, he got rehired by the coal uh, mine when the United States entered World War II because we needed a whole bunch of steel for, you know, weapons and planes. Right. And, Which, you know, that and, makes sense. That was how that was supposed to work, right? Yes, in the time right. when this wasn't, in yeah. the time when he didn't have work, he got, he was covered. And then when the time when he could go back to work. Yes. Then, then the economy yep. has improved. So he's a perfect example of of why you do a program like this. Yeah, and 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 like, it, to the day he died, um, he was a big believer in the United States because he said the government saved me and my family. Uh, um, uh, and 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 again, 
this is one of those because he was just like, you know, for easily, you know, two and a half, three years. Okay. Uh, and he started drinking. Um, he, he was a functional alcoholic. Um, but um, uh, he felt terrible about himself because he couldn't provide for his family. Right. And that was his job. Right. I mean, he never right. finished. Very he never, strong cultural. Um, he, he never finished school. So it wasn't like you could go ahead and get a different job. Okay. Right. I mean, the only thing that he had that was of value to most employers was his body. So, as as yep. many laborers experienced, yes. right? Because what we yep. saw here was a loss of jobs in a lot in laborers, in people who yes. did physical work. Yep. Um, but I'm I I'm I think it's interesting that we have the physical labor side. I'm looking forward to our next episode where we're talking about sort of the art. Yes. Because um, starving artist, while that's like a trope in movies and stuff, that was a <laughs> yeah. legit thing in the depression. And it, so it'll it really, be interesting to talk about that too. And, and the important, like the importance of not just building your infrastructure, but also building the things that feed your soul. The th- Cause you need and, both, and, and, right? You and, need- and, and remember, and remember too, listeners, in addition to feeding both. Okay. You know, you know, feeding your family, okay, et cetera, but also feeding your mind, feeding, you know, your soul, okay? Um, from a purely economic point of view, the arts, okay, are a huge industry in the United States. Right. Okay. So, right. If you want to see certain collections in museums, you have to pay. And, and, so and, part of it is free, and then part of it you have to pay for. Like, and also think about, you know, when we were talking about, you know, gymnasiums and, you know, building ball fields, et cetera, right? Even back then, you know, sports, leisure activities have been a huge industry. So if Americans don't have money for food, they're not going to ball games, which means right. now you, you got a whole bunch of athletes who are unemployed. If Americans don't have money to pay the rent, they're not going to see a show, okay, on Broadway, okay, or the local, you know, theater, which means we also have a whole bunch of actors, writers, directors who are unemployed, right? Right. Okay. So, again, the, the logic here was it's not just infrastructure, okay? Um, it's, you know, both taking care of the economics, but also the soul in the, in the mind of a community. But these are people who need jobs, right? right. And okay. who generate income for other people. Okay, so, you know, if, you know, if they're not playing a concert, they're not getting paid. And if they're not getting paid, they can't pay their rent, right? Well, I mean, and and if they're not playing, then the venue is closed, which means they can't pay their rent. And the people who were the custodial staff aren't working because there's yes. nobody to clean up after. Like it's a cat, like we said, it cascades outwards to yes. when this one thing doesn't happen. And I know that there are probably grumpinesses about this. Can we talk about those two sort of the criticisms at the uh, after we're done with the art stuff yes. next time? Because I think I think it's all magical and fabulous and wonderful, but I'd be willing to bet that you're going to say except, and you're going to point out a couple of things. That I'll be like, oh man, because that's okay. what you always do to me. Well, but it also is a paradigm shift, okay? And we'll get into that next week when we get to the criticisms, because you know prior to the new deal in Keynesian economics, the idea that the government would be responsible for providing employment, okay, was unheard of in the United States. Right, it's an alien concept. Okay, so we can get into that next week. But listeners, you know, this is one of those times, and, and again, we live in a cynical era, right? A hyper-partisan era, but, you know, Nia and I are both generally, 
maybe not fiscally conservative, but you know, we're, we, we tend to go ahead and focus on, can you pay for what you, you know, for what you're doing, you know? I would say I'm fiscally conservative. Okay. And I, um, I, I exactly. How are we yeah. going to pay for that? That's a great idea. How are we going to pay for it? You're going to pay for that. It's right? almost always the first question. <laughs> I have, right? But this is one of those examples, the WPA, okay, where not only did we employ a whole bunch of people, but the stuff that they built, okay, basically was a legacy for the rest of the 20th century, okay? You know, some of the roads that you have driven on, some of the libraries you've gone to, some of the schools where you were educated were built by WPA workers, right? Right. And, And if you lived in a rural area, okay, it was one of the few things to where you could go ahead and say, here's my connection to the government and this was a good thing, right? Right, the government gave me a positive thing instead of giving me a tax bill. Yeah, yeah. Or, right, you know, or something else. Yeah, like, right? so yeah, okay. so it, it's, it's it yeah. big pluses. Yeah. Awesome. All right, okay, yeah. well then we'll talk more. I'm excited to talk more about the other part of it when we, when we get back together. Thank you, Augie. Yeah, I enjoyed this, thanks. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.